Wheel Fork on the Road. I am your intrepid travel host, Mark DiCarlo, and next to me is the lovely, talented, and incredibly mobile Yenny Alvarez, the traveling diva. Excited to be here today. We're going to talk to you all about spring training. We're going to be talking to uh, Mark's, one of Mark's favorite people I think in he's the, the world. the best guitar player on the planet right now, Derek Trucks, formerly of the Almond Brothers Band, now uh, the co leader of the Tedeschi Trucks Band. And we're going to talk to one of my favorite people, Susan Fenniger. And the idea on this show is it's all about things that you want to do where you want to do them. It's sports, shows, and food. You have places, let's say, that maybe you've wanted to visit, but you haven't visited yet. A good way to do that is to go and visit them when there's something extra going on in town, like a festival, like you go to New Orleans during Jazz Fest, or you go to Chicago during the summer to see baseball. All of our guests on this episode are people that are they're doing things in specific places that you might want to visit, but if you do visit, you should visit while these things are going on. Did I make that clear? I think you sort of did. Okay, we're going to start with spring training, uh, baseball spring training. The beauty of spring training, in my mind, growing up in Chicago was the winters in Chicago and in the Midwest and Suck. horrible, freezing, freezing cold. And when I was a kid, the coolest thing was when March rolled around, when it was still 40 below outside, I could turn on my radio and hear baseball being played under the sun on green grass where it was warm and it was magical. And spring training to this day still takes place in two places, half of baseball Spring trains in Arizona, the other half in Florida. And we have experts from both locations who are going to tell us how to go to spring training, how to book your rooms, how to go see the most baseball games, how to meet baseball players. We got Graham Knight, who's going to tell us all about Arizona spring training. And we've got uh, Nick Gandy, who's going to tell us all about Florida spring training. Then we're going to go and talk to Derek Trucks, who was performing in Chicago when we caught up with him. Um, and Mark was all giddy about talking to Derek Trucks. He's great. He, talk about a great life. He and his wife, the incredible Susan Tedeschi, front this band called the Tedeschi Trucks Band. And all they do is they travel around the world all year long with their two kids, making music and hanging out with your friends. It's kind of what we do without the music. It is. I'd much rather be in a band, though. That'd be so cool. Like our work every night would be to go jam for three hours at night and then you sleep in till two. That would be fantastic. Our guest celebrity chef on this episode is Susan Feniger, who has made a career out of providing the best street foods from around the world to people here in America. Susan Feniger um, is one of the most prolific and the most amazing chefs you will ever meet. If you ever have the chance to have Susan Feniger in your town, you should go eat at her restaurant. Or Border Grill. Uh, she was one of the founders of Border Grill. Um, Do you remember... That uh, street, it was called street food that was in LA. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, back in the day, Susan Feniger opened a restaurant called Street Food, and she had different street foods from around the world. So people from LA could have kaya toast from Singapore, they could have kimchi from Kimchi Land. Yes. That one. Uh-huh. Uh, and she, that's kind of what her signature is. There are some, you know, people do big fancy food. She does... Authentic. Street food. And I think for my money, that's the most authentic cultural expression of an area. It's not what the rich people are eating, but it's what the peasants are eating because that's what really comes off the land is the street food. So we have Susan Feniger. So that's a pretty darn good show. We got spring training, music, and food. And we're going to start it off with 
spring training, the annual rite of the thawing of the world. It's all about baseball. Have you ever been to spring training? <laughs> no. Do you know what it is? Yes. It happens in two places in the country. Tell me about it. 15 teams work out in Arizona. 15 teams work out in Florida. And we have experts from both of those areas. Graham Knight is going to fill us in on all the tips and tricks you need to know if you're going to go to Arizona to watch baseball. Uh-huh. And Nick Gandy is our expert in Florida. And Florida. Uh, we're going to talk to him about what it takes to go to spring training in Florida. Now, you're from Florida. Did you ever yes. go to the game? when you were a little kid? Uh, not when I was a little kid because I was in Cuba. But when I was in Florida, uh, I was a teen and I did go to a couple of the games. I would think, you know what? For a Cuban family, there's no one in your family that's really into baseball. Your dad's not into baseball. We're not a very sport-oriented... Um... I know, but I thought all Cubans are way into baseball. Well, they are if they want to get out of the country. <laughs> That's their only way out if you don't get a visa or baseball. Okay. Hopefully. I mean, I like it. No, you don't. Yes, I do. I like baseball like more it, than I like other stuff. You don't love it. You know the reason you don't love it is because you haven't been to spring training enough. Spring training encapsulates everything that is great about America. baseball. And America, too, yes. <laughs> but mostly baseball because it's a little more relaxed. The prices are less. It's more um, congenial. You can sit out on the grass and watch the game. I like the event. I like the ritual. I like to watch it live. I'm not going to sit at home and watch it on TV unless there's a party. Right. Well, and, and for people Same like... Same for hockey. Right. Same for football. The difference of spring training is for the people that don't really love the baseball, there's other things to do, both in Florida... The and like Arizona. The web? Yeah, and the, the Twitter. The Twitter. Um, you know, you've got golf, you've got lots of great restaurants in both areas. So it's really, it can be a fun spring break, it can be a fun trip. I saved actor Ken Hedson Campbell's life once at spring training. Oh, did you? How yes. did that happen? We were down there at spring training, myself, Kenny, and uh, Ralph Murniak. Um, from Chicago, and we were leaving spring training, and we had purchased a bunch of Bud Long Neck beer bottles for the trip. Maybe, I'm going to say two, <laughs> two cases. And after the weekend, we had one Bud left, you know, Long Neck Buds. Yeah. And as we were packing the car to go to the airport, I stuck the one bottle in the trunk and then slammed the trunk. Oh. So we go to take the car back to Hertz. And Why would you do that? Because you don't waste beer. Are you kidding but me? in retrospect, it was a bad idea because we packed the car. Then we went and it sat in the parking lot for five hours yes. while we watched the ball game. Then we drove like crazy to get to the airport because we were late. So the bottle was probably a little shook up. Just a little. So we get to Hertz to return the car. I'm talking to the guy. Kenny goes to the back to open up the trunk of the car. And he opens up the trunk of the car, which sends the bottle, which was like evidently leaning against the inside of the trunk, flying into the air, up about eye level. It's It comes down right between his legs and explodes like a grenade, sending glass and beer everywhere. And a big chunk of glass got wedged into the, his calf. Ew. And he started bleeding uh, badly. No 911 people around. We called 911, but he was bleeding pretty bad. I put him in the backseat of the car. I whipped off my belt. I made a tourniquet, <laughs> stopped the bleeding, and sutured the, the big gash closed with another belt. What? Yes. And when the paramedics got there, the paramedic turned to me and said, who did this? And I said, I did, sir. I was expecting he was going to yell at me. And he goes, you did a great job. Aww. So I saved his life. How did you know to do that? Did you watch MacGyver when you were a kid? Well, no. You know if someone's bleeding, you make a tourniquet. 
And, you know, it was an extremity. Kenny's got plenty of blood in his body. He didn't, and he doesn't need both legs. But uh, he's got a really I'm nice sure. you know spring what? training scar. You should call him and see how he's doing nowadays. You know what? We should go back to spring training with him because we had a good time, except for that. I'm little, going for the party. That little beer. Uh, uh, so, first, you were the one that put the beer in the trunk. Let's not point fingers. Oh, okay. So, so first, you get him messed up, and then you save his life. Got it. Let's just leave it at, I saved his life. I'm sure he remembers it that way. When you're done listening to the show today, make sure you check out my new spring training piece in the Huffington Post. It's got links to uh, both of the websites uh, that we're going to talk about today, and hotels, and all the other things to do, both in Florida and Arizona. That's on my uh, travel blog at thehuffingtonpost.com. But right now, I think it's time to meet the experts that will guide us through spring training. We have the two best spring training experts in the country with us today. First off, we're going to start with Graham Knight. He's going to tell us everything we need to know about Arizona baseball spring training. Graham Knight, uh, welcome to A Fork on the Road. Mark, thank you so much for having me. thought you could tell us a little bit about spring training in Arizona. Spring training is in two states, uh, Florida and Arizona. But of the two, if you're a fan, there's definitely no better place to go than the Phoenix area. Um, it's just uh, easy to get around. All the stadiums are within 50 miles of each other. And if you compare the two states, it's just so much uh, less uh, costly to go to the Phoenix area than Florida. Everything from the tickets to the parking to even accommodations uh, is better in Arizona. Arizona, and often the access to the players for the one autographs, things of that sort, is better in Arizona. So there's really no better place to go if you're a fan uh, than the Cactus League. Why, for people that haven't been, how is spring training baseball different? Uh, now, I grew up in Chicago, and we would go down to Florida for spring break, and we got to see the baseball. And I just remember, for me, it was so great to wake up at four o'clock in the morning, and there's snow everywhere, and you're in your, you know, you're in your <laughs> winter clothes, and then you go to sleep in the back of the station wagon, and you wake up, and there's baseball. I think there's a couple of things. One, there's such a build-up to it. They talk about the day that pitchers and catchers report and so on and so forth. So you've had no baseball for months. Um, it's deprivation. It is a sport that goes on for a long time. It's not football where there's one game a week for four months unless your team has an off week. You know, baseball, it's every day, really from the start of spring training all the way through the playoffs. It's something you're just used to having. And then it's gone. You know, and the weather is not good in many places. Um, so by the time February comes around, you know, you begin to miss it. Uh, and the great thing about spring training is just you can go follow your team uh, all over the place. You know, it's not, especially in Arizona, it's not that hard to do. The greatest distance from one stadium to another is 47 miles there. And most of them are, you know, it's 10 miles to one stadium or four miles to the next. It's not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. But the stadiums are still small, which makes them intimate. You know, if, it, if you want to pay 50 bucks to go to the Giants game or Dodgers, and regular season, if you can even get a ticket, you know, it, it's it's a part of your budget, and you really don't have to budget too much for the actual cost of going to a game when you're, you know, in Arizona. I mean, if you, you know, I'll use the Dodgers as an example, if you're a Dodgers fan, parking's free at, uh, you know, Campbell Back Ranch. <laughs> Unlike uh, Dodger Stadium where it's $25 to get in. <laughs> exactly. Well, it wasn't free when it first opened. They charged $5 the first year. But what they found was that the traffic was so backed up getting in there by people having to make change or accept the $5 at the parking lot, they just did away with the fee altogether. And they realized that people can get in the stadium earlier. They're more apt to buy more beer 
serve more food, whatever it is, they'll make more money as opposed to $5 a car. So um, it didn't start off that way. The parking is not more than $5 anywhere, and a few of the ballparks is just altogether free. In Florida, you're basically paying $10 uh, for that case. And one of the big differences between the ballparks in Florida and Arizona is that all 10 of the stadiums uh, in the Cactus League have grass seating, which they call berms. Um, so you're just basically sitting on grass or you can bring in a, bring in a blanket or a towel or whatnot. Uh, and it's usually less than $10. Some of the teams have gone over the $10 price point now. Um, some of them, the Angels and Giants, have dynamic pricing, so you don't know exactly what the cost will be until you buy the ticket. Right. But usually it's pretty reasonable. And that's pretty much yeah. that, that's the place for the families. If you have little kids that want to run around and play Frisbee during the game, that's kind of more of a picnic area with a baseball game in front of it. For people that are younger, I mean, so much of what you see at ballparks, the great social settings. You know, it's not just like what Dodger Stadium was back in the day, where it's a place you went and watched the game and left after the game. Now they have little bars and there's kid zones and all kinds of things to do. So a lot of times you just want to pay to get in, and then you walk around and you, you do whatever. So uh-huh. you don't always need to even spend thirty dollars in the seat because unlike the regular season when say people leave in the seventh or eighth inning the you know, non-hardcore fans in spring training because the players don't play the whole game especially in the first two or three weeks of spring training a lot of people head for the exits in the fifth or sixth inning and some of the stadiums I use the Angels and Tempe for example after the sixth inning you can walk in off the street for free <laughs> you know, they don't charge you that point in time so you can watch the last few innings get some autographs after the game and not have to pay for it because so many people leave once the stars or the starters come out of the game. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just, it's a lot more laid back. There's a lot less restrictions. You know, when you're talking generations of fans of baseball, this is kind of what my dad would remember it, what, you know, your dad or grandfather would remember it. So it, 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 this is still kind of that connection to the way baseball was at the highest levels a long time ago. You know, and something else that's just odd is that almost, not, not all, but most of the games, about 90% are in the day. And we're so used to going to games at night and those games you know are televised which means they go on till 10 10 30 at night you know here you're done by four you can go out to dinner or do whatever it is you want to do um if you like to golf you can golf in the morning there's different things that you can do so it's a part of your day you know something you can you work in and uh, enjoying a bunch of different things and it doesn't have to cost you a lot now there are expensive tickets you can mm-hmm. obviously pay 30 bucks to sit behind home plate or you know certain giants games even the berm tickets will be 60 dollars based on you know if they're playing the A's on a Saturday, they'll put it on market demand. But but for the most part, most games are affordable. Parking is inexpensive, if not free. The food has gotten so much better over the years. So it's really become a major league experience. But I mean, it's scaled down to minor league proportions. It's just it's 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 really if you've never been. You know, you have this concept of what Major League Baseball is because you're used to watching the big stadiums or on TV. And this is just, you know, this is just so, it's not really bare bones because the stadiums are so nice and so much money has been spent on the facilities over the years. But it's really what you want baseball to be. And it's just so, so good for your soul. Yeah, that's a good way to put that. it. It's just, uh, especially, again, if you're coming down from the north where it's going to be cold and nasty, you get out there and the sun is shining and it's warm. And it's a, a strange mix, I guess, for the fans. And it's far more relaxed and bucolic than a regular baseball game. But what's really going on is you got guys fighting literally for their careers. Rookies coming up, older guys trying to hang on. So there, there's uh, probably more tension for the players during a spring training game than a game in the middle of June. 
Yeah, especially guys in the bullpen or the guy that's the fourth outfielder or, uh, you know, a guy that's 35 trying to make a, one of the backup infield positions. I mean, and it's neat because you can see all this take place. I mean, it's still, we're used to watching games on TV or computers or phones or whatnot. This is the one place where you can kind of see everybody in the entire organization and, and get an idea of what they look like up close and personal, you know, in real life. You know, you can talk to them, you get their autographs. The, the, most of the stadiums have, you know, half dozen fields right next to them, and that's where minor league games go on once the minor leaguers report to spring training. Those are free to watch. You can leave a stadium and go watch one of those games for free. There'll be nobody over there. You can hear the chatter, hear everything. So, Typically, what time uh, what time of the day do things get started at a facility? Uh, you know, if you're going to see that, I would say the best time to get there, uh, if you want to see BP and things like that, batting practice, if it's a 105 game, you want to be there around 10 a.m. Um, if you're just going to watch the game, you show up at you know, 12, 45, 1 o'clock, it doesn't matter. But if you want autographs, if you want to have, want to watch them practice essentially from behind a chain link fence at a very minimal distance, um, you want to be there. Uh, that usually wraps up around 11.15, we'll say, for a 105 game. So if you show up after them, there's really not much going on. You'll see the grounds crew water the field. There's not much. <laughs> there really isn't much going on because the players take batting practice or infield practice or whatever they do. And then they go back to the clubhouse, get something to eat, have lunch or a stretch or get massages or whatever they do. And then they start to come back out to the field, the actual stadium, let's say 12.35, 12.40, basically a half hour before the game, and then go through the stretching routine again and warm up their arms. Uh, but you usually want to be there at least three hours before game time if what you want to do is watch practice, which doesn't which doesn't often happen on the field in which they play the games. There's exceptions. The Giants do all their pregame work uh, at their stadium, but most teams use one or two of their big fields, which is just outside of their stadium. And you want to be back there, you know, let's say three to three and a half hours before the game begins, but if you want autographs, as a lot of people do, um, you want to be back to when those guys are coming off the field after they're done, and they're usually doing that, and they can only use 105 as the benchmark for game time. They're usually coming off that those practice fields between 11 and 11.30, you know, say around 11.15, so it's really what you want. Some people are there for autographs, some people are there to sit out in the grass and have a, have a beer. Um, it really caters to all kinds of fans, right. uh, because you can have access to different things that you just can't get uh, at a regular season game. I, I live in Atlanta, uh, not far from where the Braves play in Turner Field. They're br- building their new ballpark, which will open next year uh, within walking distance of a, of a place, of a condo that we own. Um, but you're sitting in the upper deck there. You know, you're more of a, a spectator there. You're not so much a part of the event. You know, you, you don't Yeah, that's a good way to put it. You're, you're in the mix at uh, spring training because you're right down there on the field. And um, I always love talking to people, talking to strangers in the... Uh, in the stands, and it seems that at major league games, uh, regular season games, there's always so much noise and crap going on between innings. Um, you, it's not as quiet as it used to be, where you could just sit and turn to the person next to you and start talking trash about some player, or you know, make little bets about uh, mound ball or the outfield game, or just kind of uh, relax. What 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 would you say, Graham, for someone that's never been to a spring training uh, before? What are your top five tips for squeezing the most uh, value and fun out of, uh, let's say, a five-day trip? 
Well, I think I just covered probably one of the most important ones, and that's you can watch the guys practice, batting practice, and all the other things they do uh, in the mornings, or if they're playing a night game, if they have a 7 o'clock game, then you want to get out there, say, 4 o'clock, but right. that's free. You know, you can go in the backfield and do all that, so you can watch them practice for free and get those autographs as they're coming off the field after their batting practice for free. One of the, and one of the key reasons that that's important is if you're waiting to closer the game starts and you're in the stadium and the average crowd seven eight thousand people you know for just a typical game obviously that's a, a lot more pack on weekends and near the end of spring training the crowds are a lot better than the beginning of spring training but you have a lot more competition and when you're confined in the stadium itself not like you can move that much so before the you know two three hours before the game there's only gonna be a couple hundred people there uh-huh so, again, it's a lot more intimate. That's what you want in terms of autographs. So get there really early if you want autographs or to watch them practice. Um, you know, other than that, uh, you know, you can kind of show up whenever you want just to watch the game. Uh, and you don't always have to buy the best seat. I guess that would be another tip for a family that's not used to going because so many people make, I think they make the mistake of walking up to the box office and saying, give me four of the best available. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's not always what you want to do because, you know, it, it boggles my mind. I have two kids. You know, I'm married. So I'm a family of four. But you can easily spend, you know, 120 bucks on tickets to a spring training game for the best seats. But are your kids going to want to sit still the whole time? I mean, you don't have to do that. You can buy, you know, the lawn seats. Let's say you're going to a game in Peoria, uh, where the Padres and Mariners are, and there's many games that seats uh, are as cheap as five dollars. Other days they're eight dollars. But you know, even at eight dollars times four, it's thirty-two dollars. It's not right. to get still. So you don't have to have the best tickets available because once the game starts, it's pretty similar to what you're going to see in the regular season. You're essentially there to watch the game, but the stadiums are so you know, small, that you're not really far away regardless of where you sit. So a difference in $15 in tickets uh, cost, say, to be behind, you know, down the left field line versus actually sitting in the left field, it's not that much of a difference in your perspective on the game, but you can certainly pay a lot more money. So you don't always have to do that. And you can check team websites or you can check the secondary market like a StubHub and Ticket Network and companies like that to get an idea of how many seats are actually available for a particular game. Because most of now have interactive seating diagrams. You know, not all the teams, but most of them do. So you can actually see the seats that are available and what the price points are. What so about buying? Um, what about buying complete packages from your team's website that include, you know, tickets, uh, hotel, airfare? Are those a better deal than doing it yourself? I think it depends on where you're coming from and what team you're going to follow. If you're a Cubs fan, you know that stadium opened two years ago. It seats 15,000 people or holds 15,000 people, I should say, and they averaged, you know, close. They averaged close to 15,000 people per game. So you don't have a lot of options when it comes to getting tickets and you'll know, be able to watch the Cubs. So maybe if you're coming from Chicago, that's a good thing. But if you're driving over from LA to see the Dodgers, you know, their games this week, their stadium holds 13,000 people. They'll eventually draw much bigger crowds. But early in spring training, that first week or two, and especially any game during the week, like this week is the perfect example because the season really just started yesterday uh, in the Cactus League with the first six games, but um, all the teams will be playing for the first time today. But, you know, the games aren't well attended that first week or the first two weeks during the week, you know, non-weekend games. Mm-hmm. 
So it wouldn't be shocking to have four or five thousand people actually in the stadium. Um, you know, and people not everybody shows up for every game. Obviously, there's certain season ticket sales, but you know, if you go early in spring training, you get to see the most players. A lot of minor league guys, but a lot of you know old veterans uh, trying to make the team make a good impression. Um, and it's just the you know there's there's a lot less people there. And I know most people go when they have spring break or when you know or maybe around Easter when they have you know more time off. But when you're going when everybody else is going, you know you're going to pay more. You know uh, first off. And you're not going to have as good of access as you would early in spring training. So I say, I, I know a tip that I could definitely give um, your listeners is to go earlier in spring training uh, if you can. Um, you know, even to before the games start, maybe you pick a couple days before games start. You can go watch the workouts when they don't play games. They hold them in the morning, usually from like 9:30 to 12:30, and that is as you know accessible as anything you'll ever find if I go into a high school practice. (laughs) I mean, they're right there in front of you. Uh, you can talk to them. Obviously, a lot of people aren't going to make a vacation going to watch practices. So people coming from long distances certainly want to be there for a game, want to see something in the stadium. But, you know, if you could maybe go two days before the, your team's first game, you can see two games of workout, two days of workouts, or a lot of times they'll have a free-to-attend scrimmage mm-hmm. on the last day of practice, and then you can watch the first few games. There won't be as many people there. It won't cost as much. Um, they're not as serious early in spring training. They're not as focused as they have to be near the end. You know, the regular season this year starts, I think, on April 3rd. You know, that last week or so, they're kind of in game mode. You know, they're playing eight, nine innings. Uh, the pitchers are going five, six innings. So there's a lot more serious because they know the season of the to starts a lot more intense. Well, Graham, thank you so much for all your information and your help. And uh, hopefully we'll see you out there at the ballpark. No, thank you so much. I enjoyed talking about it. Good info. Yes, absolutely. You could tell, you could hear it in his voice that he has a passion for baseball and especially spring training. Well, you know what? Baseball is a lot more fun than other sports. People are, don't get excited over golf. True. And there's a good reason for that. It's boring. Um, you have to be quiet at the games. My seminal spring training uh, memory, once we were at the Cubs Park, and they have the... The Cubs air, Park? They, well, it's, it was called Ho-Ho Camp Park. Now it's Lone Park. And Ho-Ho-Ho. they have the little areas where wheelchairs can park, you know, in the box seats. And one time I'm walking down the aisle, and I saw a woman who, who turned out to be... 93 years old and she was in a wheelchair and she had an oxygen tank and she was sitting there watching baseball and she had a sign on the back of her wheelchair that said you gotta believe that is a Cubs fan I hope she's still alive because this is the year this is it but that that kind of mentality is what Cubs fans are all about and what baseball fans are all about. No matter how bad your team is, you believe you still have a shot, even if you're on oxygen in a wheelchair. All right, next up, we're going to talk to Nick Gandy, and he knows everything there is to know about Florida spring training. Does he now? Yes, I could have turned to you, but obviously you're not the expert. No, I'll tell you about the parties, but he can tell us about baseball. All right, let's have him do that. Nick Gandy, welcome to A Fork on the Road. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you are the uh, keeper of the GrapefruitLeague.com website. How long have you been doing that? I think we got it going around 2005. I love baseball, and I think spring training is always a great way to, uh, you know, it, it gets spring started. The country starts to thaw out. We, <laughs> we, we grew up in Chicago. We would come down to uh, Florida 
every spring, and we would stop, and uh, we used to watch the Cincinnati Reds um, uh, do their spring training, and it's just such a fun, cool thing. You get to hang out with the ball players and walk around. How many different teams uh, do their spring training in Florida right now? There are 15 Major League Baseball teams uh, holding their spring training in 14 different locations around the state of Florida. The Miami Marlins and St. Louis Cardinals share a facility in Jupiter, Roger Dean Stadium. And, and, and there, there are, there, there's like little pockets. There's the southeast area of the state, Palm Beach County, um, Port St. Lucie on the southwest side in Fort Myers and Port Charlotte and then you come up Interstate 75 into the Tampa Bay area and there's a few teams left in the Orlando area as well. So unlike uh, Arizona where everything seems to be basically clustered around Phoenix, it -hmm. seems looking at the map on your site uh, grapefruitleague.com seems like all the teams in Florida are kind of up and down the uh, peninsula on the coast. Does it make it hard for someone that wants to visit all the teams? Do you have to kind of pick one? Not necessarily. Uh, the The peninsula is kind of thin, <laughs> so it, 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 it's there. You, there might be some driving involved, um, but if you stay within those pockets, you can have a lot of opportunity. The the most teams are in the Tampa Bay area. There's a six teams within a 50-mile area uh, from the Tampa-St. Petersburg area with the Toronto Blue Jays being on the north end in Dunedin, the Baltimore Orioles being on the south end in Sarasota and over to the east, the Detroit Tigers in Lakeland. But from a central location in the Tampa-St. Petersburg area, you can get to any of the six ballparks within an hour's drive. The Philadelphia Phillies are in Clearwater. The New York Yankees are in Tampa. And the Pittsburgh Pirates are also in Bradenton. So would you suggest for people that are coming down uh, to pick, uh, Tampa Bay sounds like the place with the highest concentration of teams, or do most people uh, go down to West Palm, go to Jupiter, and, and tour all around? Because it's a month-long event, right? Yeah, yeah I've t- I talked to somebody earlier in the month that was going to start in Palm Beach and just do like a circle around the state, go up I-95 to uh, Vieira where the Washington Nationals play, and then cut over to the Orlando area, and then go over to Tampa Bay, and then go down Interstate 75 to Fort Myers, and then cut back across to the southeast to complete the the complete tour. It was going to take, you know, more than a week, but (laughs) they had had it all mapped out to do like the circle around the whole state. Oh, that's great. So now for people that um, may be considering going to spring training for the first time this year, can you give us your top five picks to avoid paying too much and missing out and not getting tickets? What's the best way? Let's say you've got five days, you're on spring break and you want to go down and see some baseball. What are the the Nick's five top tips for squeezing the most fun out of those five days? The, the first tip is, you know, a lot of people have been going for many years or they've heard stories from parents or grandparents. Weekend games 
purchase your tickets ahead of time. Um, don't expect to walk up and get a ticket on a weekend, especially as the season progresses. Because as, uh, as we get deeper into March, right, more yeah. and more of the, the AAA ball players float away, and then you're dealing with pretty much the major league team by the last weekend of March. Right, and more and more people are coming to Florida, and the, the local communities are also coming out as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so any any games involving the New York Yankees or Boston Red Sox also plan ahead, home or away. They're a very big draw on the road as well. So that's the first one. Um, the, 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 the newly renovated stadiums are very nice. Um, the Minnesota Twins in Fort Myers, the Boston Red Sox in Fort Myers, the Pittsburgh Pirates in Bradenton have a newly renovated stadium. The um, who else is there? Uh, the Ed Smith Stadium in Sarasota. They all have all the latest amenities that uh, you don't want to miss. They they also bring a lot of fans in. In the coming years, the Detroit Tigers in Lakeland will be starting renovations after this year. I saw a picture the other day. You can see construction going on out in over the right field fence in Lakeland. So they've actually already started there, and it'll be complete by the beginning of next season. The Washington Nationals and Houston Astros will play their final seasons in Vieira and Osceola County this year. So if you're a fan of them, you might want to go see them in their current locations because after this year, they'll be moving to a brand-new park in Palm Beach County on the southeast coast of the state. Anything in the Tampa the Bay Area is is really nice. You have the big stadium where the Yankees play in Tampa. You have a small stadium, a smaller stadium, where the Blue Jays play in Dunedin. Uh, a newly renovated stadium in uh, Sarasota and Bradenton with the Orioles and Pirates. And I, I, I'm a big fan of the Phillies Park in Clearwater. Uh, I just love that area. My grandparents used to live there, and I grew up going to games in Clearwater in St. Petersburg. So I really like the new Phillies Stadium as well. So it's changed a lot over the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, we could literally just walk up and you oh, yeah. you watch the games and you walk up to the practice fields. It's kind of been oh, yeah. commercialized mm-hmm. now. What's what's the you, you mentioned your first tip was get your tickets early. Um, what's your best tip about inter- being able to interact with the players and get autographs? And do people do do people do selfies now, or is it still autographs? <laughs> yeah, you can do that. <laughs> the the uh, earlier uh, in in the day is the best time for that. As you approach the 105 per first pitch mark, players are getting more focused, but the gates open two hours ahead of time. And something people don't really realize is starting at about 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, there are players out on side fields and, or back fields, as they call them, um, where the clover leaves are mm-hmm. the, at the practice facility. There are games going on. Or you can actually see them from certain places, like from the left center field area, the berm at Bright House Field in Clearwater. You can turn around. They'll, they'll, the Phillies will be playing in front of you, and there will be games going going on behind you as well involving minor league players 
on the backfield. Uh, I, I did that in Fort Myers a couple of years ago at the Twins facility. We just happened to get there early and wandered up, looked over on the side, and there was uh, games going on on the side fields at you know nine thirty, ten o'clock in the morning, and eventually the players start moving over to the clubhouse and yeah they'll stop and talk to you and or if you get there right when the gates open guys walking in from uh the clubhouse or the visiting team clubhouse if it's away from the the stadium the um they'll stop and and chat with you as well so that's the second tip is get there early because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on early in the morning uh with uh, veterans and rookies stuff that you never get to see at all during the regular season at your home park so it's kind of an interesting uh vibe to see what a baseball player's day is like right what's next tip well the thing for the older fans like you and i the there are a lot of teams that have what they call alumni come in uh players from the past that uh are they called special assistants during spring training and you never know who you'll run into i was at an orioles game and brady anderson was signing autographs one day kent to colby is a mainstay at the Pittsburgh Pirates training camp. We had an event here recently where Dale Murphy was our uh, keynote speaker, and he was going to be spending a week at the Braves camp. So these guys come in, and once the games are going on, they're really not doing much. (laughs) (laughs) They'll wander over to the fence and, you know, sign autographs. They're there to, you know, just relay baseball information to, to new players. Players. Um, uh, when the Cleveland Indians used to train in Winter Haven, Bob Feller would be out on the field throwing with uh, kids and players, and he was well into his 70s by then. So you never know who you'll run into um, at, at, out on the field before the game. I saw Burt Blylevin uh, at a Pirates game, Pirates Twins game. He played for both teams, so they were honoring him. There was a year before he was going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Oh, that's great. Now, what yeah. about so? The, so, baseball typically happens during during the day in Florida. There's kind of more night games in Arizona. Let's say you go to the park. You're done. You're done at four o'clock or so. What else is there to do? in the area for families or uh, people and uh, any good um, restaurant locations or are the downtowns, how do you find a good place to eat and other, th- other activities to do while you're on vacation? Cause typically all the people that are coming down are just thawing out from their Northern cities. And <laughs> they want to soak up the Florida sunshine. That what, what, uh, what other options do they have? Well, with the 105 first pitch, if you're a if you're a guy like me that buys a ticket for the full nine innings <laughs> and stays until until the final out of the bottom of the ninth or the top of the ninth, whatever it is, you're you're and even stick around after the game to watch whoever might be lingering around to sign autographs. You're pretty much clear of the ballpark by 4:30, and that gives you plenty of time. And from what I understand, the daylight savings time is even earlier this year uh, in March, so it will be staying light a lot longer. So 
I always say that from every ballpark in Florida, you're an hour's drive from the Atlantic coast or the Gulf of Mexico, and you can get to a waterside cafe, restaurant, bar, and be sitting there having some dinner or a beverage while the sun sets on the beach. And, you know, in Clearwater, for one, they have a beautiful pier, a lot of the, uh, with a lot of activity going on around the pier around sunset, especially on the weekends. I think they have like a Friday night party that draws a lot of people. Uh, Several of the Tampa Bay area beaches have been nationally recognized. Fort DeSoto Park in St. Petersburg, uh, Honeymoon Island, which is off of Dunedin. Clearwater Beach has a million things going on. Uh, Siesta Key in Sarasota, off the coast of um, Sarasota, is a nationally recognized beach. Sanibel Island mm-hmm. in Fort Myers. Those are all nationally recognized Gulf beaches that are just beautiful and have plenty of establishments for uh, dinner and shopping and and you name it and then uh, in Tampa there's obviously Bush Gardens uh, in the Orlando area the Braves play on Walt Disney World property so you're right there by the Disney theme parks and just down the road from uh, Universal Studios um, great so it's basically golf, you want to find golf, fishing you name it <laughs> so basically you find your team and there's always going to be an infrastructure of restaurants and things around them uh, to kind of keep you busy at night what what about oh, the yeah. what about the younger folks who want to go out and experience the nightlife in Florida and maybe uh, bump into some players at bars or clubs or <laughs> how do you how do you find out where the ball players hang out is there a, a do you have that on your website uh, grapefruitleague.com no, no I don't I don't have that where to run into a baseball player I, I would check at the hotel where you're staying uh, for those kind of local tips maybe the concierge at the hotel Um, I know I was staying at a a place one year in in Port St. Lucie where the younger Mets players were staying and um, ran into a few of them in the in the hotel elevator one day at the time uh, they had uh, Bobby Parnell was a, a young player for the Mets he was very recognizable because he was about six foot nine <laughs> <laughs> he literally stood out in the crowd but that's what i would check for that um and you know just word out on the street uh, there there's a place down the street from tradition field in port st Lucie. it's like a sports bar with a bowling alley in inside of it it used to be i think it was a duffy's it's a big kind of local chain in that southeast florida area but some of the mets players would show up there and go bowling um you even see it in the local newspapers you know so and so was cited out and about but in these days of the big contracts they might be uh keeping a lower profile. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's really a fun uh, time. Um, what, what would you say the major differences between spring training in Arizona and spring training in Florida are? 
Well, obviously the distances is a big thing, but there's no beaches in Arizona. There's uh, no, I mean, I, there might be lakes, but um, there, there's not a lot of water out there that you can enjoy. Uh, the water also provides fishing opportunities. Um, I know that deep sea fishing, you pretty much need to have a deep sea. Put aside a, put aside <laughs> a day, you can't go out deep sea fishing and then go to the ball game. That takes all day. But there's piers in just about every city along the Gulf of Mexico and Atlantic Ocean close by that you could go out and get a day pass and, uh, you know, spend the day fishing. I know the old St. Petersburg Pier used to be a, a big spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure clear, the Clearwater Pier is another big spot for that kind of thing. But uh, just the, the little things that you'll only find in on the Gulf of Mexico. I think the, the Gulf of Mexico from... Dunedin on down is just a a beautiful place that uh, a lot of people may not know about. Well, thank you so much for your time, Nick. I really appreciate your expertise. It sounds like you've been doing this for a long time, and uh, hopefully this information will help our listeners uh, not make any mistakes when they go down there and uh, get the biggest bang for their buck and enjoy the start of what could be a really exciting uh, baseball season. The name of your website again? It's Florida Grapefruit league.com and also on that site you can download a mobile phone app that we also have now with schedules and if there's ever any weather delays or weather issues or promotions going on I send out notifications on a daily basis. Oh that's great well thank you so much Nick and uh, and we have uh, Twitter too FLA Spring Train. So you can follow everything so if there's uh, as I'm sure often happens some rain problems or uh, weather You're not going to waste your time at the ballpark. You could waste your time somewhere else. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Plenty to do. Thank you so much for your time, Nick. Have a great season. You too. You're welcome. Uh, Just hearing that makes me want to go play baseball. (laughs) You always do. Yeah. Yeah, it's just fun because it's uh, for all the reasons that you just heard. It's a great thing. And if you've, uh, you know, you've always wanted to go to Florida and you haven't, you've always wanted to go to spring training, those two websites and those two guys, that's all you need to know about spring training. And the wives get to experience it too. Sports is huge. So is music. Uh, Big time music acts, all they do really in their lives is they travel the world, they play and then they get a bus and they move forward. So no one knows more about travel than musicians. And one of my favorite musicians uh, is a guy named Derek Trucks. He started playing professionally, was nine years old, came out of Florida. He uh, was a pivotal member of the reboot of the Allman Brothers Band that went for 45 years strong. Uh, They disbanded a few years ago and he began a band with his wife, who was already a famous rock and blues star in her own right, Susan Tedeschi. And now together they front the Tedeschi Trucks Band. And for my money, it's the best American band touring every year. They're it's just a great phenomenal. show. We've seen him a and couple of times. And you don't even really and... like this kind of music. No, I'm not a blues person. But he's more than blues. He is, and as you'll hear in this interview, he, he I assume because he was in the Allman Brothers, all he listened to was other Southern rock bands. And it, they listened to all kinds of wild, crazy jazz stuff. And it really comes through in his music. And he was um, uh, not ex- at all what I expected. I thought he'd be like this 
Florida kind of Southern rocker guy, and he's he's and he never talks multifaceted. On, and he doesn't talk on stage, so I thought it was going to be maybe a hard interview. But he he was uh, very open and funny, and um, clearly loves what he does and knows what he's doing. So uh, here is uh, my interview with, uh, for my money, the best rock guitar player on the planet right now, Derek Trucks. Uh, we like to talk to people that travel a lot, and I can't think of anybody that travels more than musicians. And you've been doing it since you were, what, 11 is the first time you hit the road full-time? Nine years old, actually. So Wow. And probably at the peak, we were doing close to 300 shows a year. So still at this point, it's 150, 200 days on the road traveling. So it's nonstop. Wow. <laughs> And but you you grew up in a musical family, right? Your uncle plays with the Allman Brothers. Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up as a kid, I was I knew about it, but I wasn't around it. My dad was a roofer. My mom taught at the elementary school I went to, so we were we were homebodies until I started playing and traveling. And growing up in Florida, were you a Tom Petty fan? Who were the, who were the guitarists that caught your ear when you were young? You know, it was Dwayne Allman. It was the Allman Brothers and that Layla record. And right. Um, by nine years old, I was pretty heavily into that music. And then a lot of blues players like B.B. King and Elmore James and Albert King and, you know. The, Stevie? The greats. A, a little bit. Not as much, you know. I, I think at that point, Stevie Ray was out. I definitely listened to him a bit, but there were so many uh, Stevie Ray clones that I think I probably avoided it on purpose <laughs> every bar I played as a kid there was uh, there was somebody with the hat on and the, the get up and, and horrible chops but yeah, they looked and, a lot like yeah, it right? so uh, un- unfortunately I, I think by listening to his clones I, I didn't listen to him as much but you know there was definitely a time where I got into it and, and certainly appreciate what he did and, and when he did it right so. you have such a unique style it's like part chainsaw and part <laughs> there's such a delicate nuance to a lot of the stuff you play especially on the studio albums why why did you go with the slide and, and I, I always love the sound of the slide and the way it could it's emulate so southern yeah and the way it could emulate a, a human voice you know almost like a female gospel singer and then you know the music I was into it was it was usually that combination of delicate melodies but this fury <laughs> Dwayne Allman had that um, a lot of the the horn players I ended up listening to a lot of the blues guys were that way too like they could bring it down to a whisper and really really milk it really pull the emotion out of a melody or a tune and I, I always appreciated that the guys that could use the full dynamic range um, kind of pull you along for the ride and, and really tell you a story um, with an instrument, you know, without words. And so I was always intrigued by that. And then later on, listening to uh, Indian classical music and other things, I, I think it just it, it emphasized that even more. Kind of the way Harrison brought that kind of Eastern yeah. backspin to the <clears throat> Beatles, because it, it, it sneaks No one else on the planet sounds like you. You know, I, I was fortunate. I mean, I was on the road at a young age and surrounded by great musicians, whether they were unknown veteran musicians from the, the North Florida blues scene at the time or people that I ended up running into later. Um, but, you know, you always have to have your ears open. And um, I remember early on, maybe 14 years old, um, maybe even a little younger, but running into Colonel Bruce Hampton in, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. He's a great guy, though. Yeah, Colonel was amazing. And he turned me on to a lot of things that, that changed the way I heard music and the way I played music from... John Coltrane to Sun Ra to Ali Akbar Khan, a lot of music that I don't think I would have come across until much later in life. So 
I, those influences came early, and they came, I think, when I was most open to it. You know, when you're when you're 15 and 16, you're you're kind of on this search, and a lot of people rebel. They go through that rebellious stage at that time, and I think for me that was just going into this really esoteric music and things that maybe not a lot of people were listening to. Um, so I think I was I was well served by that. I was I was lucky to be around the right people at the right time. Well, and Colonel Bruce is one of those people that is so immensely talented and on a completely different wavelength than yeah. most people. Yet he's not famous, right? You, you yeah, I mean, he's kind of this southeastern musical guru to a lot of people. Um, he always compares himself to a minor league baseball coach. <laughs> he's like, he, <laughs> he takes all, all the guys to the yeah, man, and he breaks all the bad habits, and he and he turns you on to the right stuff and puts you on the right track. And there's been a lot of a uh, lot of great prospects come through the Colonel Bruce School. You know, we're playing with widespread panic today. Jimmy Herring came through uh-huh. the Colonel Bruce School. Actually, that whole band did. Um, but that, it's it's amazing how many people the Colonel has uh, has turned out <laughs> of his school and you're never school, oh, yeah, right? and you're never the same anybody that's that's been to the colonel bruce school is forever changed it's a it's a, a unique fraternity <laughs> did you originally meet O'Teal through him or absolutely yeah at 12 years old i played with the aquarium rescue unit and the colonel would always drag me on stage and a few times it left me on stage. We'd be in the middle of a tune, and you'd have people in the band peel out one by one until I was by myself, <laughs> finishing the show by myself. <laughs> so he, you know, he would he'd put you on the spot and make you make you do your thing. But that's where I met Jimmy Herring, uh, Jeff Sipe, O'Teal, um, uh, Kofi Burbridge, who's in this band. Uh, that was all through uh, Colonel. And that's kind of a blues tradition. I, I know Buddy Guy for the last couple of years has been taking Quinn Sullivan around with him, yes. where you've got an established <clears throat> megastar mentoring a young guy it's important you know and uh, why is it more prevalent seemingly in in blues and roots music than in more popular music because i think more popular music is generally it's bs fabricated <laughs> it's like, bullshit it is and you kind of have you have to protect the brand and it's not about music and it's not about passing it on and and real musicians care about where it came from and they care about where it's going and they care about keeping the tradition alive and someone like I mean Buddy Guy was he was great to me when I was a kid I did shows with him at 11 or 12 and he'd bring you on stage and he'd put you through the paces and you'd learn a lot and he you know he he took me under his wing he took Susan under his wing at, at, when she first played with him BB's been that way the, really the, the the real greats the true greats are they're usually pretty open to that even, even Clapton was that way when I went on the road with him I was it was later in life for me. I was early twenties, um, but he—that's <laughs> later in life. Well, I guess at that point. But he, you know, he fully—I mean, he knows what he's doing when he has me or Doyle Bramhall out on tour, and he—he's given us solo space in front of these crowds that would have never seen us otherwise. And you know, he knows he's in a way passing the torch, and he—and you know, he does that with a lot of people. And, it, it is a blues tradition. I think jazz is that way, too. Well, it's so, kind of like what the Stones did with Muddy Waters back in the late 60s. They took him on tour to yeah. Europe, and he had a whole renaissance, a second career. Yeah, and and with that, you know, it's 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 paying homage to guys that you maybe took it from. <laughs> so it's a, but it's the, same, it's the same idea. It's like you you appreciate the tradition, and whether you're bringing up people that are coming after you and trying to teach them the way or if you're lucky enough to have a platform um you you go back and you and you share that with people that you that you learn from and i I think that's a that's an important part of of what we're trying to do as well Mm -hmm. you know we just we just did this super jam down at bonnaroo and they they called me about curating this thing and 
my first thought was let's get some unsung heroes out there got people that these crowds wouldn't know and it was james gadson the great drummer that's on all all that marvin Gaye stuff and that bill withers band and willie weeks one of the great all-time bass players and taj mahal and david adalgo from los lobos and shaka khan it was a pretty amazing group of people but it was good to get those people in front of an audience that has heard them but doesn't know who they are right. <laughs> you know, they, they know the music just because it's been borrowed and passed down but they, they don't know the where it came from so that, that's an important thing to do we've done live episodes from the jazz fest in new orleans the last two years and you guys you haven't played there greg yeah. was there last year i think we'll get back to it you know we we've been on the road quite a bit so i, I think we were actually overseas both times oh really yeah we were I think in Japan one year, and then this year we were in Europe. So, okay. Yeah. So you grow up idolizing the Almond Brothers. Uncle's in the band, so I'm sure you meet these guys. Tell me the story of how you got tapped to join this iconic band. You know, it's funny, because when I was really young playing, I would do Almond Brothers covers with blues bands, and about the time I put my solo band together, around 14, 15 years old, um, I started kind of peeling away from that. I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't want to. I wanted to find something else. So I, I think when I was getting the furthest away from that music is when I got the call to join them. <laughs> you know, we we were almost an instrumental avant-garde trio at the point that I got the call to join the band. Definitely jazzy. Your early records. Yeah. Uh, the Derek Trucks band, Soul Serenade, very kind of different certainly different than the Alma Brothers and different than what you're doing now yeah but I, and that was a conscious choice you're saying yeah and I mean it was the music I was into at the time and st- you know still am but I, I think it it pulled me full circle I came back to it and I think had I not done that I, I wouldn't have been the right guy for the job I, you know because all those guys Dwayne, Jamo, Dickie in the early days they were all listening to a lot of other music and that's what made their music so expansive in inside of that blues rock scene right the stuff they were doing was pushing pushing the boundaries definitely pushing the edges out and uh that's because that's the music they were listening to they were listening to rasan roland kirk and john coltrane records and pharaoh sanders and when they were riding down the road in the winnebago it wasn't they weren't listening to uh, fellow fellow southern rockers <laughs> that term didn't exist there were no other bands doing it so uh you know the that i Luckily for me, that that path that I was on when I got the call to to audition um, was probably what I needed to do to to be the right guy for the job. What you what you audition with? Do they uh, say uh, have a couple Almond Brothers tunes and just come in and play? Nah, they sent me the the whole songbook and you know show up in Sarasota and it, it was pretty much we think you're the guy and unless you tank it then <laughs> we're gonna do this. But you know Tom Dowd was down there and the whole band and I show up and. We and were, you're how old at this point? 18? 18, maybe 19, just turned 19. And, you know, so I did a few months on the road with my solo band every night after the show, every day, just listening to Almond Brothers records and <laughs> writing out charts and taking notes and learning everything. I wanted to show up prepared. and So, yeah, you just show up and they put you through the paces. And, you know, it was, you could feel pretty quickly that it was, it felt right, you know. There, and, there's something magical about when you and Warren are, on stage and working together. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's. It, I, I saw Stevie Ray a lot. I've seen a lot of what I think are really great musicians, and some of them get to a point where it seems to me like you're not, you're not in control anymore. Yeah, and it's like it's coming through you. Is it? That's what you is hope. That accurate? Absolutely. On a good night, that's the way it is. You know, you uh, you can kind of step aside and almost almost listen and watch it yourself. And it's not every night, but on a good night, it's that way. And with me and Warren, it took some time because. 
when I joined the band, it was me and Dickie Betts for a year and a half. Then it was me and Jimmy Herring for a year. And then when Warren stepped back in, we had both essentially played the same role opposite Dickie. Uh-huh. Know, Dickie was one half of that two-guitar tandem, and Dickie had a very specific sound. So when Dickie came in, he was playing the Dwayne parts. When I came in, I was playing that role. Um, so it took us a while to kind of reinvent the two-guitar role in the band. Because your sounds and, are very different. Yeah, well, it, it became that way. I think in the beginning, they were probably closer. Um, but a- after time and after after knowing each other, and I'd known Warren since I was 12 or 13 really? as well. Yeah. Is he Maybe, from Florida as well? No, but when they, when they did the 89 reunion... They were down recording in South Florida, and the band I was playing with played this little club, and Greg and the guys came out. So I think I was 11 at the time. That's the first time I played with them. Um, so I met Warren then, and then the first ever Government Mule gig, my solo band played with him in Macon, Georgia. So I, I had been around him quite a bit, more than anybody else in the band probably. So, uh, so you know, it was it was nice when he, when he rejoined the fold and... I forget what year it was, maybe 2001, 2002. We had a history, um, but it, it took time. It took being on the road for a few years together and really relearning that music from a different perspective. But the last five or six years, it really hit its stride. It became second nature, and it, it became very conversational, which is nice. Your shows are just so... I don't think spontaneous is the right word, but just fresh and different. And you've got this canon of American music that everybody knows. But each night that I've and I've seen you guys many times, it's like different and so full of uh, life. Does it have to go away? Can't you guys just do maybe <laughs> ten gigs a year? Keep well, the Beacon gig and maybe do a couple festivals. You know, for me, the idea is I want it. At least I want my part of it to end when it is full of life. I don't. I don't want it to to not be that way I don't want to be on stage and have that feeling like you know what I'm going to work yeah I don't ever I don't ever want to have that non-inspired time on stage because I because me personally I'm not an actor <laughs> <laughs> I cannot fake it musically like it's got to be right and and it's still that way but I, I've I feel like one of the things you learn from being a band leader and from doing this for so long is you start to see around the corner you start to you start to feel when when things are maybe coming to the, their end, and it's a, it's a tough thing because it is it's a forty five year institution, and it's it's still firing. And, and, <laughs> yeah. But you know, time is catching up, and I I've, I want it to go out on time. Yeah, I want it to go out the way I think Dwayne would want it to go out, and the way that original band, what they envisioned the band to be about, which is no compromise. The music will never be compromised, and and. I can say since I've been in the band, that's always been my mo inside of the band, and I I, I can't change that. So I, I want it I want it to end with with that in mind, um, at least my part in it. Okay. You, can't, you know, how, however it goes on from here, you can only you can only do your part. Right. But that you know that's that's always been my thought. I, I never want to be in a situation where I, I can't put my whole heart into it. You know. Well, and so now you're uh, almost patch, passing the torch to. Tedeschi Trucks, and again, the Almond Brothers playing a huge role in your life. That's how you and Susan met. Tell me that story. Well, I met her. I think it was the second tour I ever did with the Almond Brothers in 1999. Susan was opening a month of shows, and we met in New Orleans at the same you know theater. I met my wife in the airport in New Orleans <laughs> while we were both doing some travel show. Yeah, you know, it's a good town to meet people. <laughs> it is. If you can remember them the next morning. <laughs> I think luckily, luckily for me, I had to work that night, so. It, <laughs> I remember most of the night. <laughs> uh, 
But, you know, it, it was a, a, a great connection musically first, you know, and I used to always joke with my band members. I was like, I'm, I'm not getting into another serious relationship unless she listens to Mahalia Jackson, John Coltrane, this long, impossible list. I was like, That'll, that should do it. <laughs> you got to be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so, but it's been an amazing ride. I mean, it's been 15 years we've been together and two kids and multiple bands and multiple records now. And it's, uh, you know, I, I think we enjoy being on the road and being together more than ever. And it's, it's really brought our family closer, you know, being able to travel together, especially in the summertime when the kids are out of school, they're on the road with us. And it, before, it was really rare that all of us were together at the same time. Right. It was either I'm on a bus going one way, Susan's the other way, the kids are flying to see her, flying to see me. And it was, it was you know... And why did it, was, it take you so long to form your own band? Because when you guys got married, I'm like... What a great idea, because your music yeah. is complimentary. Well, we were deep into our own things. I mean, I had my band, I had my solo band together before I joined the Almond Brothers, mm -hmm. and that never slacked off. It, it got stronger as it went, and Susan was deep into her career and music she had been building towards her whole life, and I didn't want to interrupt the flow of either one of them yet, you know. I wanted to wait till the timing was right. It's kind of the same with stepping away from the Almond Brothers. I, I felt like maybe at the 40th anniversary was the right time for me to step away, but just circumstances, it didn't really didn't really happen that way. I felt like it was, it was more in the tank. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but you, you kind of know when, when the time is right. And with this band, I was ready to, to try something else separate from my solo band, and I, I felt like it was maybe time for Susan too, so I came to her with the idea of, you know, if we're ever going to do it, now's the time. Because I, I feel like at that point we were both still young and stupid enough to put an 11 piece, like a big band, well, and just go did you for fire, it. And, you didn't fire anybody, right? You just combined your two bands. Well, I mean, th there was there was guys from both bands that are not in this group, so you know, it was it was a tough decision because I, I, I'd been with my guys for 15 years at that point. I mean, I was. 14 when I put it together and close to 30 years old when I wow. when we disbanded so um, you know it's lifelong connections but I think everyone everyone understood and everyone knew that you know things change and time moves on and right. everybody's gotta you, you gotta follow the muse you know especially as a musician you never going back to the Almond Brothers thing you never want to be in a position where you're not 100% inspired because uh, whether people know it or not the the music can stay at a certain level, but it's not going to feel the same. And people, people know when you're phoning it in or not. <laughs> they yeah, might not know the intricacies, but they know whether you mean it. You know. That's one of the things I love about the Tedeschi Trucks Band shows. It seems, from an audience perspective, that you guys are so dialed in to each other, and really, there's like an energy flow, almost yeah. like. I came out of the Second City Theater here. Yeah. And you tune into your people, and you absolutely know, before someone does something, you know where they're going, and when you hit that 20% of the time when you're in that zone yeah it's it's so exciting to watch yeah now that, are there what's the worst thing about working with your wife you know I I don't know if there if can there you is. work away ever and just like chill I don't know if I ever do that like I always feel like it's there um, but, but it's a great thing because it's something you love it's not I don't I don't ever feel burdened by by music or the band or any of that I, I really do love it um, I mean, sometimes when we're home and away from it, I, I try to fully get away. But you're always thinking about it. You know, you're always thinking about you hear something and it, 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 you store it away for later. It's, it's always, always there. I mean, I, I don't know if there's a worse 
thing about being on, on the road with your wife. I mean, sometimes, you know, any relationship, things might get thick, but it, I, it's that way with band members, too. It's worse <laughs> it's, with yeah. band members, right? Yeah, so I, I don't I don't know if it's if it's really any different. I mean, I, I, it forces us to, to be really open. It forces us, our communication has to be wide open, which I think only makes it better. I, I think... Actually, I know it's it's made our relationship better, and that, I think that makes the music stronger. You know, it's it's a family band. I mean, everybody. There's no higher guns in a band like this. Do you? What's your creative process? Do you write together? Do you bring finished ideas to each other to develop them together? How do, do you like sit around? It's like, all right, it's four o'clock. We got to write a song by seven. You know, sometimes we'll we'll schedule because there's so much going on in our lives with kids and other things that you kind of have to put aside time. Like we're going out in the studio. We're gonna, we're gonna you're gonna right home right. studio yeah so, right? yeah we we do schedule time but you're always coming up with ideas and putting something down on your phone or susan will sing a line in so you usually come with a few sketches um but a lot of times we'll have our friends down and we'll co-write it'll be me susan and one other person gary loris from the jayhawks or doyle bramhall or eric krasno from the band soul live uh-huh. or john leventhal different people we've met and become friends with over the years we were just hanging with uh, David Hidalgo at that thing at Bonnaroo from Los Lobos. He's an amazing songwriter, and I want to try to get him down to the studio. I'd love to write with him because he—he, uh, I think the music that he conceives of is right in Susan's wheelhouse and this band's wheelhouse. I think almost that Derek and the Dominoes thing. Like Los Lobos is one of the great American rock rock and roll bands. Mm-hmm. I, I think the music. That, that David has in mind would be great for this band. So I'd love to write with him. A lot of times it's it's being inspired by other people. Mike Madison, who's in the band, amazing You're songwriter. From your yeah. Derek so yeah, we, we try to write with a lot of people. Some of them are, are just ideas you have, though. I mean, a song like The Storm, which is on the last record we did, it was just this riff I had in my head forever and eventually you just turn it into a song you know sometimes it's something that comes out while you're improvising or soloing there'll be a melody within it that you're like that it sticks with you and you sometimes uh, so you'll take something that you may be improvising a concert and it can be working into a tune down the road sometimes the band will find these grooves in the middle of a show that you've never played before and it's so strong you realize that you know that's a that's a part of a tune so you you try to catalog these things in your head at all times Uh sometimes at Soundcheck, we'll be playing something that, that just happens, and you'll see a few people go to their phones and hit record, and it'll be six months later, and you'll, oh, yeah, you remember? Oh, that's great. we got to do something <laughs> with that. So you're constantly finding little little gems laying around. <laughs> uh, to, I don't want to take up any more of your time, uh, but this is a food and a travel show. So tell me, tell me cities you like to go to that are fun to be in and fun to eat in. Well, that, what, what you, what, I got to say, one of the beauties of traveling with this band is there are some there's some serious foodies in the band and uh, serious I don't want to say expensive winos, but <laughs> <laughs> this band likes to eat and drink, and we eat or eat and drink our way through America and the world. <laughs> and do you travel with a chef, or you go out and you find the cool oh, no, places? We, yeah, that we we search it out. You know, we we do a lot of if we have a day off. We do a lot of research online and try to find these hole in the walls or whatever's good. And ever been to Gus's Chicken in Memphis? No, I, I've heard about this place. So pretty amazing. I think it's the best chicken in America. All right, I'll remember that. Where do you go when you're in Chicago here to eat? What do you, look, what do you look forward to? 
Chicago is a, a tough one because there's so many good restaurants. Like, we, we just kind of wander and eat. I haven't spent as much time in Chicago as, as other cities. One of my favorite food stories, it's not in the States, but we found this place in Paris called uh, Le Petit Canard, and they serve duck. <laughs> and it's, it's duck every way possible. And I wasn't a big duck fan, but we, Mike Madison told us about it. And we roll in there, and... Uh, most places in Paris, when you when an American band comes in or an American family or whatever, you get a little they spit your food. Yeah, man, they don't love it. But this place, it immediately felt different, and uh, so we we ate there once. Me, Mike, Susan, and maybe one other band member, and it was such a good experience that after our show um, at the Olympia in Paris, we it was maybe eleven o'clock, no, maybe ten forty-five. The place closed right around eleven. We called. Like, sure, come on in. <laughs> we roll in with the full band, most of the crew, right before 11, and you see the chef's head poke out the back and just discuss, like, all the... Goddamn Americans! <laughs> so we come in, and but then the vibe kind of loosens up. Bottles of wine are flowing. There's a piano in the room. Kofi ends up at the piano. The whole band's singing. The owner, the chef, everyone's out. It's 3 in the morning. It ended up being one of the greatest nights <laughs> to the point where... We realize that we have a train to catch in about an hour. <laughs> Our stuff is still at the hotel, so it's this mad dash to the hotel, to the train. But so every time we go back to Paris, we, we make it a point to visit that place. It's, it's really an amazing experience if you if you ever get a chance. I mean, there's so much good food there. But um, an, another place that we always try to hit when we're down rehearsing in Jacksonville, there's this place called uh, Beach Road Chicken, speaking of chicken places. And it's I think it's the oldest uh, restaurant in, in the city. It's been there since the 30s. Well, I, I always used to go after baseball games as a kid. We go, but we, we take the full band in there and take that place over, and it's family style. Uh -huh. you, you order, and they just bring piles of chicken, piles of sides, and pretty great Next spot. time you're in Memphis, it's, it's down by where the riverboats dock, yeah. and it's a shitty white cinder block place. Surly service, but the chicken is is incredible. I mean, the other one we did recently, JJ, our drummer, is from uh, Austin, Texas, and uh, he'd been telling us about Franklin's Barbecue, and he's like, "We well, oh, got to get up early. You got to stand in line." And you know, so we did it after a show. Everyone's a little hurt, and it's early, and we've been up late. And like JJ, this better be worth it, man. This is <laughs> it's hot out here. And they're serving beer in line, like they know. Right. They know their clientele. But it, it was uh, it was well worth it. So n now when we go to Austin, we recruit people to stand in line and bring barbecue ribs to the bus <laughs> in exchange That's for the perks of being a rock star. We give out tickets for ribs. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we, we eat our way through America. It's it's pretty wonderful. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to see what from the outside looks like a really fantastic and exciting life. Uh, sounds like it really is. It is, man. We're, we, we're really fortunate to do what we do and, and love it and. The, the music is, is growing and getting better and the, the vibe and the hang is growing and getting getting better and it's not always the case I mean I've been in and around a lot of bands and uh, it's it's hard to keep that momentum and th this thing has naturally been on the right path really from the start so you know you gotta you gotta nurture it you gotta stay on it but it's uh Got a good feeling about it. Well, it, you, you guys are fantastic. I'm so happy that you're uh, here tonight, and I really appreciate you taking the Thank time you, to sir. talk to me, man. All right. Thank you very much. Have a great show tonight. Yes, sir. I had no idea that the Almond Brothers were listening to Thelonious Monk and all that freaky music. You'd think that they would just listen to Molly Hatchet and shit. No, see, they listen to everything. Well, because they're great musicians. They really are. There's something, it's like watching a great improv show or watching a great live performance of any kind. 
70% of the time, it's good because they're professionals. But every once in a while, you know, everyone's in a great mood and they're jiving together and something happens on stage live that's different and special and you can feel it. Every time I saw Stevie Ray Vaughan, it was like that. Uh, he was just not physically there when he was playing. His, he was channeling something else. Um, Van Morrison is great half the time you see him. The other half the time, he's okay. But when Van Morrison is great, he's amazing. And, and the Tedeschi Trucks Band are fantastic. I want to thank Derek for uh, taking time out of his busy day to talk to us. They're coming to your town this summer. Go see him. Oh, so good. Such a great guy. Um, and the music is spectacular. We can't use any of the music in our shows because of uh, legal stuff. But Google You them. should go out and get his uh, CDs. And, watch him on YouTube. He he plays the guitar like Jimi Hendrix reinvented how people play the guitar, like like B.B. King did, like Les Paul did, like Stevie Ray Vaughan did. Zach Wilde. Zach Wilde. Derek Trucks plays the guitar like nobody else on the planet. You got to see it uh, uh, to believe it. So thanks to him for being on the show. That feeds me. That, that feeds you? Yeah. Well, music feeds you food. Really great, authentic food feeds me. And as Mark always says, you should travel on your tongue. You should experience everything and eat everything and taste everything. And one of the people that actually is uh, the master at doing that and making you feel the authenticity of uh, different regions of the world when it comes to food is Susan Feniger. She's one of the founders of the Border Grill Street the street food truck, and a new place called the Mud Hen Tavern. And she's joining us today to talk about food and travel. It's Susan Feniger. Welcome to A Fork on the Road. Hi, Susan. Hey, how are you guys? We're great. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're, we're so happy to have you with us because more than any other chef we can think of, you have made your living on the streets. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I am very drawn to the streets. Why is that? Well, I just think, you know, I, I I think probably it started way back. One of my first trips, I think, was when I was when I was in high school. I lived in Israel for, you know, a short period of time on a kibbutz. Mm -hmm. There were three of us without any money. And we at one point we went traveling for a couple of weeks and sort of just ate on the street and ate this incredible food. And I think that sort of really got me started in loving just finding great little finds on the street, in alleys, in neighborhoods. And, and it really, even though I didn't ever think at that point I was going to be a chef, I didn't really think about it. It for sure, I think, was something that influenced me. And then, you know, after opening City Cafe in 81, I took my first trip to India. And then even then, I just feel like even though I had done many years in the French kitchen and training and very strict kitchens, that experience of eating on the street again then in the early 80s in India really blew me away. And I think changed the whole direction for me in my career with food and what I was drawn to. Well, and it's, it's really the ultimate democratization of food. You know, anybody, not anybody, but if you walk into a restaurant, you walk into Commander's Palace and you drop $2,000 on dinner for four people, it damn well better be good. And, and that's going Gonna, that restaurant's going to be there for a long time, but really to survive on the streets, you've got to be extra good because there's so much competition, right? The, the, the kiosk next to you, if it sells a better tabbouleh, no one comes to you and you go broke. Well, what I do think oftentimes street stands do is they take one item and it's something that either potentially, you know, someone in their family made or they grew up with and they just 
often when it's really great, they work it and work it until that item is so delicious that when it's great, it usually is is really like out of the park fantastic. And right. so I, I, you know, have to say more often than not, I will eat something on the street that I think really is just blows me away. And it's not that often that that happens to me you know, in a restaurant. Personally, I love eating street food whenever I travel because next to living with a local or being invited to their home for a home-cooked meal, that's the next best thing, eating street food from people that are, you know, making it and not at a, at a big corporate place. You know, even not corporate, like not chains, but there is something really, I don't know if it's the energy, the atmosphere, it's the connection you have with the person on the street, you know. It's a it's, direct connection to the chef. And, and it's a direct connection to a culture that I think when you're sitting in a restaurant, you don't get. And there's something about that that I think when I'm traveling is really uniquely from that world. And, and I think I, it's a survival instinct, too, because if they're making one thing at their stand and it sucks, they're not going to be able to feed their kids or pay their rent. You know, it's, it's so, I think yeah, there's it a better be good. That maybe that's the energy you're talking about. It's like this has got to be great because there's so many other places you can go and eat, but you're stopping at this stand to eat my stuff. Yeah, that's when you get return customers. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, for me, it's really about, I love the connection that gets made. I love the communication that happens even when you don't speak the language, when, you know, there's something very, obviously very down and dirty and real that happens there. And when you find one of those great places, it really is. It's very inspirational. And for me, it sort of gets me thinking about food in a different way it you know we took this trip just recently with three of our chefs to Tijuana just for the day and we spent like 10 hours eating on the street there were the certain things that we ate that just sort of stuck in your mind and you bring that back and you put, sort of put your spin on that and you end up with this really you know we ended up I think all of us walking away very inspired by those few moments and that one eight hour day inspired all of our chefs to look at food a little bit differently. And it's it's fantastic how you take that and you bring it back so people can experience it as well. Because I remember when I went to Ensenada, there's nothing here that will compare to the Ensenada's fish tacos with a beer batter. Nothing. So I love the fact that you go to places and bring them back so that everybody else that may not be able to go to these places with you, may not be able to go, you know, by themselves. They may not have the funds, but they get to experience it here. And speaking of great places, one of the best places that I have ever been to that I looked forward to going and that it was like, oh, what are they going to do next? It was Street on Highland Avenue. Yeah, here in Los Angeles. It was my favorite thing on the menu was that Kaya toast. I couldn't get enough of that. It's something that you crave after you leave and you can't wait to get back there and eat it again and have that. I think about it now and I have that taste in my mouth. You know, that's a very, very typical street food dish from Singapore. And, you know, we just did a remodel at Street in December and we renamed it Mud Hen Tavern because we sort of took the whole inside and moved the bar so we could upgrade the whole bar and made it cozier because I feel like we sort of missed that mark with coziness and that for me what I've always felt about 
street food everywhere, whether it's in this country or other countries, is the comfort coziness of that. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. So we, you know, we kept like the Kayatos, a Singapore street food dish on the menu. And, you know, then we sort of did our spin. You kept the Kaya Toast. Oh, thank you for that. Our spin on chicken and waffles that are really Again, one of those, you know, you every once in a while you come up with one of those dishes like the kaya, like the, you know, chicken and waffles. You know, I think like our potato rajas tacos at Border Grill that knock it out of the park that you just love and you think that's just one of those dishes that you don't ever want to take off the menu. How do you maintain this creative energy and this uh, exploratory energy. I mean, you, you're, you're more than a chef now. You're a brand. You, you know, the Border Grill is famous all over the place. And now you have a street truck. Where, where do you, how do you keep coming up? Why don't you, you find why, yeah, why don't you just, Yeah, why don't you just sit home and say, screw it. I don't care. Just keep sending me the checks. Why does it still matter? Well, you know, I mean, certainly I don't think, I think the restaurant business, at least um, it for me, is always is always about being hands-on, involved, being inspired myself and hopefully inspiring some of the, you know, people that work for us. And I think it's really it's about constantly constantly sort of staying involved with what's happening in the food world. Mm-hmm. So I mean, for example, that trip we took to Tijuana, it was the five of us, Mary Sue, myself, our chef, you know, our chefs from the border grills. And really that that was just an inspirational day. We were down there for 10 hours and, you know, it was it wasn't that you come back with a million recipes. But if you come back with one great new idea, that's exciting and inspiring. And so I guess, you know, I love food. I love, you know trying new things. I love meeting new people, experiencing new things. So it's the combination of all of that and going to new places. I was in, you know, Shanghai last year and um, in Vietnam and the year before that. And I've you know, you learn about cultures and people outside of America that is, you know, that just keep for me, it just opens my world, my life to so much bigger than just myself and my own little restaurant. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, luckily, For me, you know, my work pushes me to do that, to stay inspired and on top of things. And I try to make myself make time to do that Um, because I think it's, you know, 30 plus years later, it's what has kept um, us able to keep restaurants that are still, you know, strong and going. And, you know, the restaurant business, it's hard to, you know, stay around for this. True, very hard. Um, And, you know, you also have a great television career. Uh, What do you like better doing? Would you rather be in front of a camera or in a kitchen? I love the energy of a restaurant. I really do. I love everything about it. I love, you know, traveling and eating food and meeting people and learning about cultures through food. I love the energy of when we're really busy and being able to be on that line. We just did a big, huge benefit in San Francisco a couple of days ago for um, a board, the Scleroderma Research Foundation that I've been on this board for 25 years. We raised, by cooking, $600,000 for medical research for Scleroderma. Wow, Wow. that's fantastic. Was that Bob Saget's thing? Yes. Actually, I've been on the board for 25 years and Bob got joined the board about 17 years ago when his sister passed away from scleroderma. Mm-hmm. How did you get from a kibbutz to the border grill? I know. Where did you grow up? Did you, you sound like you grew up in Chicago. I grew up in Toledo. Close. Close. Toledo. Yeah. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. 
And, you know, we're not talking any Mexican food there. <laughs> Although we did have a place that we all used to go to that had terrible Mexican food. Mary Sue and I opened City Cafe in 1981 when we went to open the bigger version of City Cafe. We figured out we had to do something with our little tiny restaurant. And we were trying to decide between a taco stand or a noodle shop. And the taco stand won. We took our, <laughs> we took our first trip to Mexico City in 1983. You know, we traveled in a VW bus. We stayed in Mexico City with the one cook we had in our kitchen at that time, his family, the Neelands, Tacho Neeland. And we stayed with his family and... We just hit the streets and started to learn about really amazing food. Both of us were trained in the French kitchen. And when we hit, you know, Mexico and started to eat, go to the markets in Mexico City, come home, we'd cook all day long with his mom, just like learning about the flavors of epizote. And we went on down to the Yucatan in our VW bug and learned about, you know, achiote. And I think that opened our eyes I had taken that trip to India and it sort of opened my eyes away from the French kitchen and into strong flavors. And then that first trip to Mexico, it just clicked for both of us. And we fell in love with the Latin culture and kitchen. Well, it's and it sounds like you've learned more on the streets than maybe you learned in the French kitchen. I'm guessing it's some form of an evolution. For for new chefs that are coming up right now, would you suggest that they go and train in a kitchen somewhere or hit the road like you've done and kind of learn by the seat of your pants? I learned a ton in the French kitchens. I worked, you know, for many different chefs. I worked in the south of France for a year. I learned a ton about technique and styles that I think are invaluable. And then with that knowledge, then traveling and eating on the street, I think you're able to understand different cuisines in a way that if you don't have a sort of classic training, I probably would never give up that ability to either work in very strict, you know, very professional restaurants where you learn how to make pâte you know, creme anglaise, you learn how to make beurre blanc, you learn how to make a great fish stock, a chicken stock. You learn the basics. Right. Don't have you, you learn the you learn the basic vocabulary of cooking, and then once you you've mastered that language, you can go out into the world and apply that knowledge to all the different flavors you suck up. Yeah, and I think it makes you able to. I think it helps you. It's like you know, learning the very basics, so that you then are able to build upon it. I think without that knowledge, it's very hard to build upon that and be able to do things as well. Yeah, I, I, and certainly you are the poster woman for that. We, we talk to a lot of chefs and a lot of people that travel for a living on the show, musicians and actors and things. And I, I always say the best, most authentic way to travel someplace is you travel on your stomach, travel on your tongue. You, you experience a culture through what the people eat because they're cooking the people down in the Yucatan. They cook with chicken eggs and avocados and fish because... That's what they got. Yeah. Di- different things, you know, if you're in Texas or if you're in Canada. The way they use them. Yeah, you get different things. And it's really a, a window into people's psyches and their souls, I think. And if somebody wanted a window into Susan Feniger, um, I know that you are you have cooking classes coming up. I'm, I may be able to uh, 
come and see you in your, your cooking classes at Border Grill downtown LA in Saturday. Yeah. I'm wondering if you're um, going to be doing that in, in the, at the new restaurant at Mud Hen Tavern. Well, I'll tell you, we're doing, you know, Mary Sue and I do like once every two or three months, we do a class. Like we are doing one. We're going to do like a fava bean huarache, a squash blossom relleno, avocado cocktail, you know, an horchata panacota. Ooh, yeah. horchata panacota. Yeah, so we I just, went. I went to school with Orchana Paracata. Great, great third baseman. <laughs> you know, and we're doing one in Vegas on May 10th, sort of Mother's Day. And that's a pretty cool thing where we're doing all brunch items. And yeah, every once in a while we do them at Mud Hen Tavern. Um, they're not as regular as we do them at Border Grill, which is, you know, bordergrill.com, or you can go to mudhentavern.com and learn about what we're doing, when we're doing classes. For people that don't live in Los Angeles or Vegas, what's the best way for them to kind of pick up on your cooking mojo and learn? Would you say your books, your videos? Do you ever travel and do cooking classes in other cities around the country? Well, she also has Twitter. You can yeah. Travel. You can't learn how to cook from Twitter. No, but you can find out where she's going to be next and when she's coming to yeah. your city. I have all these videos right now. They're they're up on a site called DIYfood.com. They posted a bunch of my cooking tips or uh, you can go to uh, LizLockman.com and there's a bunch of cooking videos on there. So I think the best way, I mean, probably is to take a cooking class. But if you're not here, I think our cookbooks, all of our border grill books. And then we, I also have the street food cookbook. And I think... Those are great ways in which to take a simple recipe and experiment with them. And then you can always go onto Facebook and ask any questions you want. Mm -hmm. I respond to that. I have one question. For people that are not in L.A., how can they get your Kaya Toast? Because everybody <laughs> should taste that. It is insane good. But you can buy the street food cookbook and the recipe is in there. It is. Yeah. I know what I'm getting to. ching Yeah. There's a sale <laughs> right there. Uh, if you were not a chef, what would you do? What I, else interests you? Well, I have tons of interest, but if I was not a chef, I think I'd probably be a therapist. Oh. Well, yeah, because that you got to be a therapist to be able to run a kitchen because everyone in food service has some screw loose, right? So you're constantly dealing with personalities and all the dramas in the kitchen, which I, I don't think people at the front of the house really appreciate. You must have a crazy story from your kitchens over the years. Well, you know, there's always fabulous, <laughs> great stories and, you know, about things that happen, you know, in the kitchen. I mean, I, know I remember one time Mary Sue and I were going doing an event in downtown L.A. during rush hour, and we had uh, two five-gallon containers of hollandaise for this event. This is probably 25 years ago. <laughs> and um, Traveling with hollandaise. I don't know who was driving, but we were in my old dumpy car. You know, we used to always go to the fish market in, so it stunk and it was dirty. And one of us slammed on the brakes and the bucket <laughs> on the floor. But we were late. So uh, we pulled over and scooped up. Oh, 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 no. Like it was all the little black little pieces in there. We pretended like they were black pepper. Oh, no. <laughs> Talk about street food right off, right off the street. 
God knows what was in that sauce. Uh, <laughs> no one knew and no one got sick, so that was good. Well, Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're you're a, uh, a culinary icon here in Los Angeles. We've eaten at Street many, 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 many times. times. And I guess now we will be going to the... Mud Hen. Because the Toledo Mud Hens. That's the baseball oh, team in Toledo that, would be my guess, that, right? That, thank you for that, being so, so curious and uh, tireless in your cuisine. Really, your energy pops through the radio here and... Um, we reap the benefits. We do. Thank you so much. Continued success in your eatings and your travels. Thank you, Susan. Don't you just want to go out and eat something odd and exciting? With her. Yes, it'll be great, but if she can't feed you, she can at least guide you. Yeah, now is it just me or are Midwestern people nicer? I, I, what are you talking about? Well, I grew up in the, you know, I grew up in Chicago and she grew up in, in Ohio. And there's just like, it seems like it would be fun to just go out and hang out with her and have a drink and go eat some weird food. Because I think food is the best way to understand people that you don't understand yet. Yeah, understanding their culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's made a career out of traveling the world and bringing that culture back. So we thank her for being on the show. And we thank everybody. Thank Derek Trucks for coming on the show. And Graham Knight and Nick Gandy for spring training. A little bit of everything on this episode. All about sports, shows, and food. If you're going to travel somewhere, make sure there's something going on when you get there. And travel on your tongue. Right. You can follow a band. You can follow a chef. You can follow a sport. Whatever it is, going someplace new while you're experiencing something that you already do is a great way to try out a new place. Uh, so thanks for listening to this episode. Until next time, I'm Mark DiCarlo. And I'm Yenny Alvarez. And we'll see you on a fork on the road. Hey,